The following sermon is presented by Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. It's good that we have the opportunity to talk on this and that we can have a, a time that we can deal with these doctrines. So if we can advance to what we're going to work at is God's work in salvation. But I want to start this message off a little different way. One of the challenges of dealing with one of the points of these doctrines of grace, they all build on each other. They all go from total depravity to election to atonement to now grace, irresistible grace, and perseverance saints. They all go and flow together. And many times, and when you look at this, the verses that are used are similar verses for all of these points. It's very similar as to what they do. The many of the verses that Bob used and I will use are the same in order to illustrate the point. And the other issue is, is when you deal with the topic of irresistible grace, it seems like when you read an article on this, two-thirds of the article is developing the first three points so that you can then talk about irresistible grace. Okay, That's just the way it is because they all build on each other. So I want to do something a little bit different. And I want to talk about the concept of semantics. So if you can go to the next term or the next uh, slide on that, the word semantics should come up. I want to talk about that because it seems to me that within this area, we, ha- we have to deal with how we word things. And it is very much necessary for us to look at because you've often heard the retort. It's just a manner of semantics. And oftentimes you hear that word and that phrase being used as an excuse for fuzzy thinking. It's really used as, a, as, a, as a, a disclaimer, if you will, for poor, if not wrong, choice of words. And it seems to me that semantics is not an excuse. It's not incidental. It's actually the whole point. I mean, semantics involves the study of the meaning of words. And we really have to be very precise in using the right words that convey the meaning that we are attempting to express. And if we are unable to do that, and don't say it precisely and correctly, then a different meaning is going to come across. And indeed here, if semantics is a study of meanings, we really have to be very alert to the words that we use in our communication. And it seems to me that when we come to the area of the doctrines of grace, we have to be very careful of the semantics and the words that we use because how carefully we express these things And these passages and these doctrines is really going to determine the effectiveness of how accurate we are in communicating God's message. We have to be spot on in these type of things. So, let's talk about semantics and all of these points as we lead up to irresistible grace. Total depravity. What's it mean? I mean, does it mean that man is as bad as he can be? Or if you substitute one little word in there, does it mean man is as bad off as he can be? I mean, you better hope that man is not as bad as he can be. Do you realize that he could be a whole lot worse? You would not want to live one day in a world where God has removed his common grace and where God has removed the restraining power of his Holy Spirit. You would not want to live that day. You have yet to see the depravity of what man can do. They are not as bad as they can be because God holds it back. But on the other hand, is it not true that they are as bad off as they can be in their spiritual standing before God? Absolutely. They're totally corrupt. They are as bad off and they are unredeemable if they stay in that state until God does a work in order to bring that salvation to that individual. Then, of course, when you talk about this concept, you talk about free will. What in the world's free will? How do you define that term? And a lot of times the debate over this is because you have two parties that are fighting over this concept of free will, and both of them are operating from different definitions. 
and they have to take a, they have to take the time in order to get those definitions right. It was really interesting. There's a denomination out there called the Free Will Baptist Churches. Have you ever heard of them? They're around. I went to their National Free Will Baptist website just out of fun. And it says this, in their belief structure, it says this, He, God, has given man the freedom of choice to accept or to reject Christ's sacrifice. Well, you know, great day. I can agree with that in that very basic sentence. I mean, do we not have the freedom to choose? Do we not as individuals choose what we choose because we choose to do so? It's our choice. We make that decision. The problem with that definition is what's behind it. What do they really believe in saying that they have freedom of choice? Do they mean that men have the innate ability in and of themselves to make that choice without any help at all? That's a different story. That's a different concept. What I really enjoy asking people at this point is when you get in that debate on free will, I I ask them, can man apart from God choose God? And 99% of the time, they will say, no, we need God's help. Well, if that's the case, you've just admitted your will is not free, right? You've just admitted that you are dependent upon an outside source, God in this point, in order to help you with that decision for him. So why is this so hard? You know, you have to understand and get onto the same semantical game, if you will, the same page as to where they're at. Unconditional election. Do we have semantics there? I mean, I, it, it's really interesting to me. Did God elect people? I would say that you should answer yes to all of that. <laughs> Did God elect people? We have been elected according to the foreknowledge of God. Yes, God's involved in this. Uh, so you read the Bible, and you very clearly see that election is there. But now you know where we spend the time arguing about it? We argue about it and debate it, and we talk about the manner in which election was done. Mr. Vargas talked about that very clearly yesterday. Did God look down through the quarters of time, see those who would believe, and then choose them? Or did God, by the free will of his grace, predetermine those he would choose, who would be saved, chose them because of the freedom of his grace, he was going to bestow that upon them, and therefore he was going to leave the others go within the ways and the paths of their life? Is God's, condi- is God's election conditioned upon man, or is it unconditional based upon God? And oftentimes, as Bob even pointed out, as Mr. Vargas pointed out, we cry fairness. You know, It's not fair for God to do it this way. And oftentimes we answer, we answer something along the lines, well, it's not fair that God chooses anybody. And that's true. I agree with that. I guess anymore, and when I get into this discussion, I tend to take a more aggressive answer. You know, something that kind of with the subtlety of the hammer of Thor, uh, because I just get tired of dealing with it, you know, quite honestly. But, you know, people, people that say this, you know, they look at it and they say, you know, you can't believe that God does that because by God choosing some and not choosing other, he condemns those other people to hell. That's just not right for God to do that. And then by contrast, if God looks down through the quarter's time and chooses those who believe, that's what's fair because it's leaving it up to man. And I go, you know, I don't agree with you. Because it seems to me you have the same problem that you're accusing me of. No, I don't. Yes, you do. And you go back and forth. But they have the same problem. Because if you look down through the quarters of time in their perspective, and God sees those who will believe and choose them, does that not mean that God sees those who will not believe, and yet God decides to create them anyway, and by that very creative act, he has condemned them to hell? 
You have the same problem. Just admit it. And then it goes back, well, it's because free will of man. And then you start all over again in that whole discussion. Well, <clears throat> now we come to the next slide, limited atonement. And uh, are there semantics within this? And the answer is yes. And here you have the phrase up here, did Christ die for the elect? Everybody should say yes. The Bible teaches that. But now you have to insert that word once again, just like we did on depravity. Did Christ die only for the elect? That changes the whole dynamic and the whole discussion, doesn't it? And that's where the heat comes in as, as you begin to banner back and forth on what does that mean. But at the same time, if you have common grace, how does that come into play? How does that deal with it? And how do you handle that in light of the atonement? Now, you know, this next... Uh, don't hit the slide yet, Jacob, but the next slide... And what I'm going to show is the one that I was worried the most about in this message. And I'm so thankful that Pastor Bob said what he said at the end of his message because now I'm not worried at all. All right, so hit the next thing. This is from a Reformed theologian, John Murray. This is how the semantics get involved. John Murray said this, Many benefits accrue to the non-elect from the redemptive work of Christ. Thus all the goods showered on the world dispensed by, cross and the exercise, dispensed by Christ and the exercise of his exalted lordship is related to the death of Christ and accrued to man in one way or another from the death of Christ. If that's the case, then it was designed to accrue from the death of Christ. This is to say that even the non-elect are embraced in the design of the atonement in respect of those blessings, notice, falling short of salvation that they enjoy in this life. It would not be improper to say that in respect of what is entailed for the non-elect, Christ died for them. Now you can look at that statement. I'm just sharing the semantics that are involved, how precise you want to be. Murray's position at this point in time was that if common grace extends outward, then were they not indeed involved in the atonement in one way or the other, but it stopped short of the salvation that they could attain. They'll never happen. Common grace will by, definition then, will, by definition, then condemn them to eternity because they did not embrace Christ. Some of the semantics and the words that you say and how you say them. By the way, when you hear somebody talk about this subject matter and they declare that they're at a four-and-a-half-point Calvinist, I can guarantee you that the half point they equivocate on is this one right here. Limited atonement and how that works with common grace. That is the issue, and that is the problem that you have to strive to deal with. So, very difficult and very something to work through. And by the way, what Bob said was absolutely spot on. What did Christ's death do? It accomplished salvation. It paid the penalty for our sins. Never forget it. It was designed for us. Well, let's go to the next slide, because now we have semantics too. What about in perseverance of the saints? Is there issues with that? Todd Dykstra is going to cover that later because there's all kinds of things about that. Eternal security is the same. Once saved, always saved. So Pastor Todd is going to be talking about these kind of things. Semantics and involved after lunch if you can persevere. <laughs> <clears throat> now for our topic, irresistible grace. What do you mean? Does God force me to do something that I don't want to do? 
I mean, I'm trying everything that I can not to come to Christ, not to mouth the words of belief in Christ. And God is up there like a puppet master. He has me by his strings. He's forcing me and coercing me to do those things that I don't want to do. Is that what it means? The irresistible tends to connote something like that, doesn't it? But what is it being talked about? Let's precisely look at this. Now, how we're going to look at it is in this way. Salvation is fully of God. So if you can go to the next slide. And salvation is fully of him. So we're going to look at this subject matter through this lens. Salvation is fully of God. First off, working our way up to irresistible grace. God does the planning. God does the planning. Isaiah 46.10, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, I might add, says this. I've declared the end from the beginning. From the ancient times, things are not yet done. My counsel will stand. I will do all my pleasure. God indeed has done the planning. Daniel 4.35, another great verse. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven. Among the inhabitants of the earth, no one can stay his hand or say to him, what are you doing? God's the one that does the planning because he is the one that's fully in charge of salvation. <clears throat> Secondly, God does the electing. Mr. Vargas talked about that yesterday, right? <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> God does the electing. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 to 5. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we be holy and blameless before him. He predestined us for the adoption of sons. God does the electing. He's the one that has done it. The third point we want to talk about in God fully involved in our salvation is what Bob talked about. God does the sending. John chapter 3, verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. 1 John 4, 9. Mark it down. Herein was the love of God manifest in us. God has sent his only begotten son in the world that we might live through him. And verse 14 in 1 John 4, we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Now, that's a verse Bob will have to talk about when he's saying here, Savior of the world. You'll have to talk to him about what that means afterwards, okay? So, yeah, God does the sending. So, you see what's involved at this point? God has planned it. God has done the electing. God has done the sending. So, now, let's bring in irresistible grace. Because, you see, we have to define it. And what I, what's interesting is that many times when you look at these definitions that are out there, they're way, way, way too long. <laughs> In fact, the Westminster Confession, when it talks about this, it's, it's many, many, many words and one long sentence that you probably can't even say in one breath because it has to link everything together, okay? But here's going to be my definition of irresistible grace, and it's simply this. Irresistible grace is the work of God that effectively moves the sinner to belief in Jesus Christ the Savior. It is God's work that moves the sinner to belief in Jesus Christ the Savior. And we're going to see that when God moves to save the sinner, that the sinner cannot and will not resist God's work upon him, and it will result in belief in Christ. Now, before we go any further, let me just say this. This is totally necessary. How can a person who is depraved in their heart, who is dead in their trespasses and sin, whose mind is at enmity against God, 
and who cannot do anything that's well-pleasing to God in his sight, answer the call to fellowship with Christ. How can that happen? I mean, fellowship is is not one-sided. It's a mutual thing. Fellowship with Christ involves us embracing him, of committing ourselves to him. Yet how can a person who is that depraved do that? And it's only because what God has done and what God is doing and what he will be doing in the life of that individual. Left to ourselves, mark it down, we would never, ever, ever choose Christ or come to him. It would never be done. We can't, without God, ever choose him. So let's move on to the next point as we look at this. God's in charge of our salvation. Here's irresistible grace. Now what does God do? God does the calling. So let's turn to Romans chapter 8 and begin in verse 30. Romans chapter 8 and verse 30. We went through this in the book of Romans, as Todd spoke through that. But God does the calling. Beginning in verse 28, I want you to notice, uh, well, verse 29. For those who God foreknew, and you'll notice here these verses are being used over and over again, right? I mean, these verses are the same verses that you heard from Joe and from Mr. Vargas and and even from some of what Bob's going to be bringing up. These verses are used because they all tie together. For those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Now, you know, we use the term call many ways today, right? I mean, I'm going to call you on the phone. (laughs) You know, I'm going to, you call your husband to dinner, uh, you know, you have a, uh, the church calls a pastor. You know, we use the term in that way. Or you might get a subpoena to call you to court. You know, but in all of these cases, you can choose to ignore those calls if you want to do so. Uh, and I might add, if you ignore the wife of your call to dinner, you ignore that one at your own peril. Okay, so that's, that's, that's the key there, okay? Marital harmony is the key. But I want you to notice some things here. The calling that is mentioned here is what God is doing, right? And this calling that is here is God that is calling those people that he foreknew and that he predestined. It's limited to who then? It's limited to his elect. And since God is the one that's doing the calling, that guarantees a response. People are going to respond because when God issues the call, he's issuing the call for us to to be moved out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his son, You know, there is that general call that we invite everyone to come to Christ with. We want everyone to believe. But the call that's being talked about here is limited to his people. It can't be rejected. Those who are called are actually saved. It's not left at all to chance. It's what God has put into effect and what he is going to do. It's really interesting here is that Paul, I think, has in, has in focus with this call the bridge between predestination and justification. Did you notice that? He predestined, he called, and what's the result of that call to salvation? Justified, declared righteous. This special calling that God does is effective, and it's going to enable the elect to respond in repentance and faith. You see, my friends, the call that God issues can't be ignored. If you will, it's a subpoena that has been written 
and done to appear before him in his court for the purpose of what? To be declared righteous. He has done that and he has put into that into place. He has declared us just. Our sins have been forgiven. We are free from judgment and condemnation. The call is from God that leads to salvation and accomplishes his purpose. God does the calling. So you see the process of what God is doing in our salvation? Started out from the plan that he had for the world all the way now up to him calling for salvation. Now we see another component here, a verse again that Bob looked at. John 6, 44, God does the drawing. So if you would look to me at John chapter 6 and verse 44. And we're going to look at this verse and then go back to chapter 6, verse 37. Verse that again, we are familiar with. Where it says this, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. No one can come. I mean, it's very clear, isn't it? God the Father calls the elect, draws them into fellowship with the Son, and presents to them to Christ as the trophies of his grace. God is the one that has done that. And it is impossible for the sinner to come to Christ without the work of the Father. The implication here is very clear. When the Father draws, the person is going to come. If you go back to chapter 6 and verse 37, what does it say there? All that the Father gives to me will come to me. Notice it doesn't say there that all the Father that gives to me are going to be brought to me somehow. They will come. They are the individuals when God gives that call to salvation and the drawing process, that part of the person is going to be changed and God is going to do an action within their heart and life so that they will come. There is no chance that it will not happen. God is the one that's in charge of that, and that coming to Christ is that movement of our commitment to Christ. It engages our entire being, and here God says that they will come. It's not that they may come. It's not that they might come. It's not that they have the opportunity to come, or probably they are going to come. It's not what it says. It states that they will come. It is impossible for that to not happen because that is what God has specifically and clearly stated. It is absolutely certain with no doubt. You know, it's impossible, remember, within our salvation. It's impossible for us, anyone, to come to Christ apart from the Father's drawing. And it is likewise impossible for a person that has been given to Jesus by the Father to not come. They will come, and they will be his trophies of grace. So God is the one that does the, does the calling. He's the one that does the drawing. But I'd also like to point out this. God does the saving. God does the saving. Now, in order to look at that, keep your finger here in John chapter 3. But I want you to turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 has an amazing passage that kind of tells us what God has done and what God is doing. So here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we'll begin reading in verse 13. But you ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because what? God chose you as first fruits to be saved 
through the sanctifying work of his spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through what? Our gospel, that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. How did God save us? Two things are mentioned here. He saved us through his word, and he saves us through the work of the Holy Spirit. So first off, let's just look at that. We know this one very well. How have we been saved? Through belief in the truth. You, no one, can come to the Savior without having the gospel message being presented. You have to understand and see the word and what God has done for you on that behalf, and the message of the gospel must be preached and proclaimed. Salvation cannot come apart from that. We know that. We've heard it over and over again. Even in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of God. You need to have the word of God. God saves through that. We also see in 1 Peter 1, 23, you've been born again through the living and enduring word of God. The Bible, the gospel message is involved Men and women have to hear the message of Christ. That's how God saves through his word. But let's turn back to John chapter 3. Men are also saved through that work of the Holy Spirit. God does the saving through the work of the Holy Spirit. Now here is a passage that you all know. And the hardship with this passage is that, quite frankly, it takes many messages to get through it, something that is well beyond the scope of today, right? And in fact, verse 5 is such a problematic verse, journal articles, theses, all kinds of things have been written on this because there is such a a, a wealth of belief structure on this. So what I'm going to try to do is keep it simple in light of the topic of irresistible grace because what we see here is Jesus uh, is being approached by Nicodemus. And after Nicodemus makes his comment in verse 3, Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And that literally means born from above. They are ones that must have life planted, if you will, from above, from heaven. It's something that's not of human origin. It must be different. It must produce change in your life. And Nicodemus is confronted with that right away as you must be born from above. And Nicodemus is saying, boy, I just don't get this. You know, his reply is, How in the world can I go back into my mom's body in order to be born again? That doesn't make any sense. Now, more than likely at this point, you know, Nicodemus was understanding that Jesus was trying to speak speak spiritual truth here. And in essence, what Jesus was trying to say is, look, Nicodemus, (laughs) everything that you're accustomed to as a Pharisee, you need to start all over again. You need to have that personal relationship with God. You need to start again from the beginning, and you have to be born from above. And Nicodemus really did not want to do that. So in order to throw a wrench in it, he makes this statement, how can I be born again? He's really asking a rhetorical question, asking for Jesus and expecting a negative answer. But notice what Jesus then does. Jesus reiterates in verse 5, very truly I tell you, unless you're born of water and of the spirit, No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and of the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh. The Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases. You hear its sound, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. What's our Lord saying here, reminding Nicodemus? Now, Nicodemus was one that should have understood this. 
But yet now Jesus is saying, look, Nicodemus, you have to be born of water and of the Spirit. And that's where the debate comes in. What are those phrases mean? I would just like you to turn real quick for me back to Ezekiel chapter, um, I'm sorry, Ezekiel chapter uh, 36. Go back to the Old Testament, Ezekiel 36. First off, I think Nicodemus might have understood this and had this in mind. But the first thing I'd like to point out is when Jesus says you must be born of water, he's probably speaking of purity. You have to be purified. You have to be made whole. And it's really interesting, too, when you get into the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says that you are purified by the washing of the water of the Word of God. So even the Word of God is coming to play here once again. So Nicodemus might have been thinking about this. It might have been coming to him. Notice it says in verse 24 of Ezekiel 36, I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle what clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and you be careful to keep my law. And more than likely what, what Nicodemus is hearing at this point is referring to the restoration of Israel saying, look, this is what the spirit is going to do. He's going to take that heart that you have and he's going to change it. He is going to take it out of that stony, hard, depraved heart that you have and he's going to transform it into one that can understand the message of Christ, and is going to put that in you so that you can be changed and that you can be committing your life to him. He's removing that heart of stone from you and giving you a heart of flesh. The whole point here that is being stated by Christ is that you need to be spiritually purified. You need to be spiritually reborn. It's born from above, and that Holy Spirit is doing a work within you where he takes your heart and changes it so you can embrace Christ. And when you do, you freely and willingly come to him. Now in John chapter 3, 2, also I should say, in John chapter 3, also we find there, and I just want to point this out because this really comes into play within our salvation. I think it's kind of interesting here is that in verse, uh, in verse 6 where it says, flesh gives first birth to flesh. You know, here it's almost like our salvation is being compared a little bit to our childbirth. Can I ask you a question? Did any of you have a choice when you were born? Did you go to mom and dad and say, you know, I really want to be born on this day at this time frame? Did you tell them the gender you wanted to be? You had absolutely nothing to do with it, right? You were entirely dependent upon the actions of what your mom and dad did, and you were simply born. You know, when it comes to our salvation, it's the very same way. You know, it's not a decision that we have. It is something that God has made. And then God is the one that has put it into play. He has put it into action. And what he has done and put into action will come to pass. Those who are his elect will make that decision for him. No doubt, mark it down, it will occur. The other thing that's interesting about this in verse 8 where they kind of compare this to the wind, what the Holy Spirit does. You know, the wind is beyond our control, isn't it? Do you control it? Can you tell the wind what to do? If you think you can, what I want you to do is I want you to go out to Kansas when a tornado is coming. 
or to the Gulf Coast when a hurricane is blowing in and stand there and tell it to stop and see how far that gets you. It was nice knowing you. You have no control over this, do you? You have no say in the matter. The wind is beyond your control. That wind, when it's coming, it can't be resisted. It just takes everything with it in its way, right? You know, the same thing is true again with our salvation. God wills it. The Holy Spirit, when it comes in the fullness of his power, breaks down our prejudices, breaks down those barriers, subdues our our rebellious will, overcomes all obstacles, and we commit our lives to him. You see, when you look at all of this together, efficacious grace is the work of God through the word of God, through the Holy Spirit that effectively moves us to believe in Christ. It's effective in that it accomplishes what God wants. It doesn't, you know, we have a role in the sense that we believe, but that's because the Holy Spirit's already been doing his work. We're never saved against our will. It's not... It's, it's strictly speaking, if you will, efficacious grace is what God is doing and has been doing within our hearts and lives so that he can get us to the point of where we believe and put our trust in him alone. And my friends, if you remember from the concept of total depravity, we're incapable of doing this. And God in his way and in his manner has an effective aid to assist us to come to Christ through his word and through his spirit. Salvation is fully of God. Now, I want to bring up a couple of difficulties of this doctrine. The first difficulty to talk about is the term irresistible. Now, I, I personally don't like it. I mean, it conveys something that I don't think it is, it, is, it is meaning to convey. I mean, God doesn't draw people into his kingdom kicking and screaming. It's not like we're opening up or that we are being so pulled into it, we're actually doing something that we don't want to do. But rather, what it is saying is that God has softened our heart in such a way that we gladly submit to him. And we freely and willingly come to him joyfully because God has already changed our hearts. I prefer the term effectual call, quite frankly, or efficacious grace, or if you want to even call it a saving call. I'd rather look at it that way because I truly believe it more accurately represents what's going on. It's a saving call. It's something that entirely comes to God. Now, you know what that means. That means it's going to mess up our little tulip acrostic a little bit. But on the other hand, it's more accurate. And if you don't like tulips anyway, that's fine. Um, So anyway, it is more accurate to say it that way. But the term I just don't care for. Let's talk about it, what God has done. Efficacious grace. Secondly, you often hear this. It is contrary to human responsibility. You know, in other words, if efficacious grace is necessary for salvation, and if God alone can supply it, how can God hold me responsible if I reject the Savior? Well, there's a couple of fallacies there that's on the screen, or it should be on the screen. First, none of us have, if you will, a claim on God's grace. None of us. It is something that is freely bestowed by Him. And secondly... We have to remember, we forget that when efficacious grace is not experienced, common grace is received. It's still there. It's still there and God's showing his loving kindness to man. And when common grace is not sufficient to regenerate, it is sufficient to condemn people to eternity without Christ because they did not respond to the Savior. You know, a reformed author said this, Common grace does not lead to salvation. 
but it keeps this earth from becoming a hell. He's spot on. God's grace is manifest toward all. Now we come to the last objection, and just click the button one time here, because here's the issue. Which is first, regeneration or belief? So I want to take a poll. All of you are required. You are all being called to take this poll. You cannot resist. You have to answer. So here's the question. Because all, and this, by the way, has already been brought up in a couple of different ways, but let's deal with it a little bit more correctly. After all, what do you believe? How many of you out there believe and feel that you oh, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and then you are saved? After all, that's what the Bible teaches John 3, 16, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. The jailer in Acts 4, 12, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Okay, how many of you feel that way? Raise your hand. That's how we're taught. That's how it's preached. And if I see zero hands, you're not being honest. All right, thank you. I see one. I see that hand. That's how we're taught, okay? By contrast... How many of you feel that you are born again and then you believe? I mean, John 3, we just read it there. Unless a man is born again, he can't even see the kingdom of heaven. Oh, many of you are resisting the call. <laughs> you don't raise your hand. All right, so which is first, regeneration or belief? Now there's a problem, so uh, let's, let's click it twice here. This is where our keys. Uh, okay, stop there. Because here's the issue. You know, when you look at this from a time perspective or a temporal perspective, you got problems. Now, when I talk about a temporal priority, what I mean is this. One action is preceded by another action. So, for instance, that's what we're used to in our life, right? I mean, that's what we deal with. We're time-oriented creatures. So when I say, if I throw a ball against the wall, my throwing is an action that occurs before it hits the wall. Now, my dad used to say, because I was so bad at certain things, I couldn't hit the wall with the ball. That's how bad I could throw it. But anyway, it's a temporal thing. One action is preceded by another. Now, if you view this question from a temporal perspective, you got some problems. For all of you that state that you believe and then you're born again, hit the slide... You then have a non-redeemed believer, right? You believe, and then you're born again. So for that period of time, you got an issue. So what about the born again and then believe? You that raise your hand to that, you now have a what? A redeemed non-believer. You see the point? When you look at this from a temporal or time perspective, we have issues. May I just suggest that we need to look at this from a logical priority in order for us to understand this. Logical priority, not time-oriented. So let me explain it this way. If you look up, you will see lights. Are the lights on or off? They're on. You can see them. What caused the lights to be on? Well, duh, Chris, that's called electricity, right? So let me ask you a question. Did the lights cause the electricity, or did the electricity cause the lights? And it's very easy, right? The electricity caused the lights to be on. Now, let's say that you, for instance, are going into a dark room, and you flip a switch. 
the lights come on. How many of you stood there and said, man, that took a long time for those lights to come on? I can't believe there's such a delay there. It's a problem. Something is wrong. I mean, none of us do that, right? Because it is instantaneous in our hearts and minds. I mean, we like flip the switch, lights are on. There's no time lag. I would contend the same thing is similar when we look at it in light of our salvation. Logical priority is that God is the one that calls. He's the one that draws. He's the one that flips the switch. The Holy Spirit is the electricity that does the work of regeneration. And then in our minds, the light goes on and we believe and it happens that quick. We need to look at it logically and not time-oriented because it all works together in a nanosecond if you want to put a time parameter on it. It is irrelevant, simultaneous. It's God that does the work, and it seems to me that when he talks talk about in John 3, you can't even see the kingdom until you're born again. God does his work, the Holy Spirit does our work, we put our faith and trust in him, and it's that quick, and we don't have to let these kind of things bother us. So let's bring all of this together. You know, in eternity past, you had God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They existed in perfect harmony and in perfect unity in the triune council. They were lacking nothing and they needed nothing. And then for some reason that I can't explain, they decided to put into play and implement a plan. Why? I don't know. How long did it take? I don't know. How long would it take for any of us to declare the end from the beginning for everything that occurs for everybody? Well, thankfully, God existed before time was even there. <laughs> so anyway, so how long? I don't know. But in God's mind, it could be done that quick. So God existed in that plan. He put together that plan with the triune council, and included within that plan was sin. And sin entered into the world, and it had a major impact on man. I mean, here were men who knew God. They didn't glorify him as God. They didn't give thanks to God. They wanted nothing to do with God because their mind was darkened. How, were, how in the world, then, could those men and those ladies and human race then ever give that commitment of their life to God when they are running away from him at all costs? And God says, you know, I can help with that. Because as part of my plan, I'm going to, by my sovereign grace, choose some of those out of mankind that I'm going to bestow my special grace upon. And I'm going to redeem them. And they are going to be my elect, my children. But we still have a problem. The problem is the sin of man. Because you see, since the sin of man has come into play, sin demands a penalty before a holy God. How was that penalty for sin going to be accomplished? Man couldn't do it himself. It's impossible. How in the world could mankind pay the penalty for that sin and make themselves right before God? It could not be done. And that's when Jesus Christ said, I can help take care of that problem. Because what I will do then is I will come to earth. I will take that penalty for sin. I will live that sinless life in coming to earth. And I will be then the penalty for their sin. And I will die upon the cross in order for men to be saved. Christ came. 
And that's why 1 Peter says he clearly bore our sins in his body on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. He paid the penalty for that sin. But we still have a problem. The problem is what? The sin of man. Because how can the elect chosen of God who have had their sins then and the penalty for sin paid for by the Son of God, when presented with the message of what God has done, ever make a decision for Christ when they're still running away from him at all costs? How in the world can that ever happen? How are they going to come to know Christ? And in our human terms, that's when God the Holy Spirit steps up and says, my turn to bring it home. Because when we are confronted with the message of the gospel of Christ, then what God does is he's doing that work within our heart. He issues the call to salvation. He issues, and, and, and at the same time, is drawing people himself, and the Holy Spirit does his work in regenerating us and bringing us to faith in Christ, and we believe and trust in him and him alone for our salvation. It's truly a whole work of God. But we still have a problem. The problem is what? The sin of man. Because now, after all, the elect of God, whose penalty was paid for by the Son of God, who have been regenerated by the Spirit of God, who have believed and trusted in Christ alone, will still sin. We have to admit leaving out the topic of the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, there's not one sin that a believer is incapable of committing. Can a believer lapse into sin? Can they even serious sin? I mean, we talk about people and believers going through a serious fall. We talk about backsliding. We talk about carnality, moral, last, moral lapses. So how are we to deal with that sin in the life of the believer? And that is why our next topic is covered by Pastor Todd after lunch. So it is a cliffhanger where he will then answer all these questions and more as we come after lunch, as we talk about perseverance of the saints. Just put up the last slide real quick. I don't know how many clicks is in that one. Uh, another click. Another conclusion here, just something to think about. Uh, another definition of irresistible grace, but I want you to write down a couple things, the last two things. Unwarranted confidence in human ability is the product of a fallen human nature. And I hate to say it, that's what a lot of the Arminians deal with. They think man is a whole lot better in their ability and what they can do. And I also want you to remember in irresistible grace, scriptures teach that God softens the heart of men and women such that they gladly submit themselves to his commands None who are not softened will submit, and none who are softened will want to rebel. And that was true within our salvation, if you think back. We came freely and willingly, as God did a work in our heart and life, to bring us to that knowledge of Christ. God, we do thank you for your word. And Lord, I, I really hope and pray that we are all going to be refreshed anew with what you have done in your salvation and what you've provided for us. And God, you know, it's so easy as we go through many years of being a Christian that these truths just
almost grow stale at times, and they don't have the impact or meaning that they once had and the excitement that we had when we first came to know you. And God, I pray that you will do a work in our heart, my heart, that what you have done in the glory of your salvation and how you have brought us to yourself will never grow old and that we will marvel constantly at your grace and what you have accomplished. God, thank you, and thank you for what you will do in our lives as a result of this day and this conference and hearing your word preached and proclaimed. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon presented at Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.